Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Manel Estayer from the Josep Carreras Cancer Research Institute on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You obtained your PhD from the University of Barcelona in 1996. You then were an invited researcher at the School of Biological and Medical Sciences at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. From 1997 to 2001, you were a postdoctoral fellow and a research associate at the Johns Hopkins University and School of Medicine in Baltimore, USA. From October 2001 to September 2008, you were the leader of the CNIEO, Cancer Epigenetics Laboratory. You then continued as the director of the Cancer Epigenetics and Biology Program in the Belvitke Biomedical Campus of Barcelona for 10 years. In May 2019, you then became the director of the Josep Carreras Leukemia Research Institute in Barcelona, Barcelona. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yes. So since I was a child, uh, I was interested in, in medicine. But at the same time, um, I was uh, kind of afraid of being a real medical doctor, uh, having to deal with the patients and not providing answers to very important problems. And even at that time, I already decided that I would do something in medicine that is not uh, so related to the patient, but it's involved in discovering what's happening to these patients and to the disease. So that became my, my first interest in science, science applied to medical knowledge here. Um, from there, uh, I already moved to more biological context about what are the mechanisms, how we can find biomarkers to define the disease, etc. But was this, this idea trying to help in a more uh, indirect manner uh, to the patient? No? I think that uh, for me, science is a uh, field that helps the next patient. It's never helping the patient in front of you, it's helping the next patient, the next, uh, not the next generation, sometimes it's a patient in five years. Yeah. So coming to your science that centers around epigenetics and epitranscriptomics in the context of cancer and disease, uh, usually I like to take a tour through the scientific career of the guest, uh, but given the amount of publications and the limited amount of time we have, um, I want to change the format a little bit and uh, yeah, take rather a step back and look at your work from a broader perspective. So many labs nowadays investigate histone post-translational modifications or chromatin remodelers and their role in cancer. However, your lab took another approach and looked at non-coding RNAs, the effect of DNA methylation on the expression of those non-coding RNAs and the effect of non-coding RNAs on chromatin effector proteins in cancer. So um, what was your work like in this field and which non-coding RNAs did you study? So for, for many years, uh, my lab studied many coding genes that, that were uh, lost or gain of function in cancer cells uh, associated with changes in epigenetics, in DNA methylation, histone modifications, etc. But at one point, uh, we really realized that most of the transcripts, the RNAs, are not messenger RNAs, are non-codings. So no, these non-codings have to play a role uh, in not, in not only in healthy cells, but also in disease. So that's the reason we, we try to translate the knowledge that we had from epigenetics to the non-coding RNA field. And, and we realized that many of these non-coding RNAs 
had these anti-tumoral functions. They are uh, non-coding RNAs that are involved in repressing growth or repressing metastasis, and a lot of them were lost in cancer. And the main loss was associated with uh, gain of DNA methylation, usually in regulatory regions. Another is a long list that you can see in all these different subclasses of non-coding RNAs. There are one, two, three, four, five non-coding RNAs that are inactivated by an epigenetic uh, mechanism. Um, you said that DNA methylation and non-coding RNAs are connected. So I guess the increase in DNA methylation would then decrease the expression of those non-coding RNAs, right? Yes, there is a cross-communication. The clear one for us is that there are changes in DNA methylation that affects the activity, the expression of non-coding RNAs. All types, from microRNAs to long non-coding RNAs, etc. Sometimes it's the, a loss of methylation that activates a silence. Uh, non-coding RNA. And it's interesting that maybe that way around is true also, because it is known that uh, some non-coding RNAs are important in establishing DNA methylation and histone modifications in healthy cells. So it's possible that this is alt also altered in, in cancer uh, cells. So this, this is a cross-communication, although my lab mostly focused in from epigenetics to non-coding RNAs. Can you maybe name an example of such a no-coding RNAs that you worked on? Yeah, so uh, um, we were the first lab to describe that microRNAs were silenced in, by DNA methylation in cancer. And these are the most popular when encoding. Uh, there was a time that everybody was doing microRNAs in, in, a, in the cancer field. No? There was nothing else in the world, looks. And at that time, we found that many microRNAs, they had this role, tumor suppressor role. Some of them are involved in, in the generation of uh, angiogenesis, in the escaping from um, from the contact with other cells and generating uh, spreading and in the bloodstream, etc. Some of them are involved in uh, in cell cycle. There are many examples of microRNAs that we discovered at that time. Later, we moved to more uh, longer uh, nucleon RNAs. There are several types. One is called TUCRs. And these are also important regulators of gene activity. MicroRNAs mostly regulate messenger RNAs, but long-nucleon RNAs are able to regulate messenger RNAs and microRNAs. So it's like a, a, a labyrinth of, of things that are uh, being uh, having a cross-communication all the time. Yeah, well, what would you feel is the more important um, type of uh, non-coding RNA, the microRNAs or the long non-coding RNAs? Or is it just like everything is important? <laughs> Yes, I think that, that everything is important because some of these microRNAs are very important for a particular case. Let me give you an example. There are ones, uh, some non-coding RNAs are very small and they are not microRNAs, they're called pyRNAs. The pyRNAs maybe are relevant for uh, germinal cells, are, are, uh, are critical for the development of, this, of testes. In testicular cancer, they are lost by, the, by uh, DNA methylation. So for that tumor type, They're critical, okay, but they don't care other tumor types, maybe. And imagine X chromosome inactivation. There is here a, a non-coding RNA, schist, that is critical for the X chromosome inactivation. So without that non-coding RNA, there are no chromosome inactivation in females, in humans. So it's critical. In imprinting, there are some antisense RNAs that are critical for establishing this uh, monoallelic expression, monoallelic parental expression that we call imprinting. All this can be altered in cancer cells, so it depends. So would you think that if a non-coding RNA is lost and you put it back, that this will somehow have a positive effect on the cancer? 
Yes, yes, we have shown that in in vitro and in vivo in animals in the preclinical setting. And now there are several companies uh, trying to do this RNA target therapy here. Uh, the same that we have RNA vaccines now. This is an RNA target therapy in cancer that is targeting some of these non-coding RNAs. They are still not approved for the clinical use in patients, but a lot of investment has occurred in that field. Another field that is maybe also influenced by non-coding RNAs are enhancers. And uh, yeah, many people are looking now at enhancers um, and you also worked uh, on that. So what is the influence of enhancers on cancer cells and what did you find in your studies? Uh, at the beginning of the, the era of epigenetics, mainly DNA methylation, so most of us uh, we discover and help to contribute to other uh, findings that this DNA methylation was taking place, studied in the proximal promoter, very close to the transcription star site. In that small region, no? we call CPG islands, very close. But uh, later we realized, thanks to work, basic work from many biologists, that there were other critical regulatory regions. And in the 3D space, they were very relevant. And we can call these long-distance regulatory regions, enhancers, super-enhancers, insulators, etc., etc. And we thought, okay, if they're so important, maybe they're also wrong in cancer. There is a disturbance of epigenetics here. And we identified that, uh, that there are changes in DNA methylation in enhancers that this change completely the phenotype of a cancer cell. A cancer, uh, enhancers are critical to maintain uh, identity of healthy tissues, of a, of a normal tissue. If you lose um, uh, the enhancer activity, that cell is not anymore uh, breast epithelia. It's something else. It looks like a breast epithelia, but it's a breast cancer. So enhancers are now uh, a critical element that is distorted in cancer cells. And DNA methylation contribute to that uh, aberration. It seems that DNA methylation is a yeah unique or not a unique but a universal feature of all this. Um, it regulates enhancers. It regulates um, the expression of non-coding RNAs. So is that some kind of the basic mechanism also? Uh, it is. Uh, keep keep in mind that all of our genes, no, also all of our cells, except in maybe a few immune cells, all of them they have the same nuclear DNA sequence. Okay, but they have they're doing very different things. And they're different, different activities because they have a different epigenetic setting. And DNA methylation is part of that epigenetic setting. Um, the profile of DNA methylation for particular sequences in the bladder is very different than we have in the eye. And this associates with the retina in the eye. So this associates with this particular profile. So they're critical elements. And we know that cancer is a disease that you lose identity. The, the tissue doesn't remember its normal function. It's doing something else. It's growing like crazy. So the yeah the the task would be to bring it back to its usual state. So if you have a liver cancer, then tell the cancer cells, well, remember you are a liver cell. Uh, yeah, that, that's the idea. So a lot of this, uh, when we talk about epigenetic therapies, for example, uh, we're, we're thinking that uh, epigenetics is very dynamic, it's very plastic. You have a mutation, it's very difficult to go back to the wild type allele. But if you have a gain or loss of methylation, you can go back, okay? And sometimes it's a way that tumors survive and they adapt in a Darwinian manner. But we can take an advantage, a medical advantage. We have drugs that are able to restore functionality. Uh, these drugs probably work better 
uh, in some tumor types, they don't have a lot of chromosomic big uh, changes. No? If you're missing a whole chromosome, you know, maybe or a, a whole arm or two, three arms of different chromosomes, it's very difficult to restore a more normal phenotype of those cells. No? But for example, leukemia, lymphoma, in sarcoma, uh, and other tumors, uh, here you can restore this functional epigenetic setting. And you can induce differentiation. And this is very interesting because if you have a cell that is really undifferentiated using an epigenetic drug, it's able to restore the markers of differentiation of that. And these cells, if they differentiated, doesn't grow. If it's committed, it's not a cell that grows. So um, it's not only important to find the cause of a cancer and how to cure it, but it's equally important to find biomarkers that are easily accessible in order to diagnose the cancer early enough that a treatment can still be successful, right? So this has also been an area that you focused on in the last two decades, uh, and maybe also DNA methylation plays into this. Um, what can you tell us about biomarkers in the context of cancer? Yes, I think that after it was established that cancer epigenetics was a critical factor in cancer development, and progression, and now has been recently recognized in the, in the important work uh, by Hanahan, the Harness of Cancer here, is one of the components critical there. It was important to translate this knowledge to some application, okay? And the application will be, one of the applications beyond drugs is to use uh, epigenetics like a biomarker of the disease, of the disease and the behavior of the disease. For example, we can use uh, DNA methylation classifications using artificial intelligence to classify uh, tumor types and tumor subtypes and to identify a cancer of a non-primary that you don't know where it came from, uh, a meds, and to say, okay, this metastasis came from the lung and the medical doctor has a chance now to give a specific treatment. You can say this, this brain tumor in the kid, in the children, is from this subtype. And because it's in this subtype, maybe it has this mutation and now can give a drug, uh, this classification. No? Uh, some of these markers are already in the clinic. Uh, ones that we discovered uh, many years ago, now is used in, uh, in every day in the hospitals around the world to classify brain tumors. If you are positive for this methylation, you receive this drug. If you're negative, you have another type of therapy. So there's something that makes this, this step to, to clinical practice. So what are the challenges in this field that you face? So I read a little bit more that in the field of genetics in cancer. Uh, and until now, uh, people use, in the, for example, in, in the managing of cancer patients, they use more, apart from the families with inherited breast cancer, uh, in the clinical context, they use 25, 30 genes that the mutations there can, can try to predict responses to therapies. So now in that portfolio, they have uh, four genes that they are there, okay? that they are methylation genes involved in, in epigenetics. Uh, but it was hard even for the genetic people to put those genes there, not, not only the clinical side, to add this to clinical biochemistry, classical biochemistry in the blood, to have these genetic markers. So, for, so I think that one of the challenges is that this knowledge is understood by, by the clinicians and, and provides an extra value to them. And they are able to understand that provides this extra value. Um, and we're still a little bit in that a phase of explaining the, the value for them. Uh, but uh, the good thing is that some of the markers has made it to the clinical practice, and I think that the drugs has been an A-opener for many, for many clinicians. Yeah, but I think it's also, on the one hand, very time-intensive and also very cost-intensive to do all this like uh, personalized medicine, as, as it's nowadays called. Um, but I think it, it's worth it, right? It is worth it because uh, sometimes patients receive therapies that are extremely expensive, extremely expensive, 
when we know that they're not going to have any effect. And vice versa, if you know they have a molecular setting that's predisposing to the effect, that patient for sure should receive the drug. And for example, we have recently demonstrated a profi an epigenomic profile in, uh, in the chimeric uh, receptor cells, in CAR T cells, that predicts which cells of this type of, uh, of cell therapy are going to be effective. Okay, and this is highly expensive therapy, extremely expensive. So it's important who is going to receive these drugs or not, these, these cells or not. So I think that uh, an, an investment of 2,000 euros at the beginning can save you 200,000 euros if, if it's not a, a good responder. And the way around, you, you had a good a patient that it looks like a responder, that patient for sure has to receive this type of drug. But this will also include like training for many, many clinicians, right? Um, because they need to be aware of all this. Yes, but some of this uh, training, at the, of course, in the School of Medicine or, or in, in Biomedicine, but at the end for them it's very easy because at the end uh, it's like a list. They have, it's a black box. They have to tick the same way that we ask for cholesterol in the blood. So at the end you ask uh, MGMT methylated or not. Uh, what do you have? Um, what is the hemoglobin concentration? Over this value or below? So at the end it's like a tick. In, they have in the hospital. Yeah, that, that's very promising. So you also looked at like two very specific uh, things in the cancer field. First, the Werner syndrome gene. Um, so what was your work on this Werner syndrome gene and what did it tell you? So with a couple of things with, with Werner, uh, but probably the, the most relevant was associated with realizing that the patients with uh, Werner syndrome and other progerias, uh, the Hutchinson-Guilford progeria, they have this premature aging, okay? And at the same time, they, are they have a premature aging, they have a higher risk of cancer, okay? Uh, so one of the main risk factors of cancer is to be old, in fact. Uh, smoking is number one, but the second is to be old. As we, as we age, higher risk of cancer. It's like a, like a diagonal, it's high, high significance there, okay? And what's interesting when we look at, at the epigenomic setting of Werner's syndrome patients, they had a profile of DNA methylation that it was like they were 90 years old. And these were kids of nine years old. So it's a very good uh, biomarker of aging, of biological aging, that sometimes in the same time chronological aging. Because the kids with the Werner syndrome, chronologically they are nine, but biologically they are 90. And methylation is a good marker of that. So it can be used in the future, maybe like a, a, a test to measure lifespan. Because if you are 90, your cells are 90, the humans only live 110, 120, no more than that. So, yeah, measure the age of the person on a like epigenetic level would then predict some kind of the, the risk of getting cancer? Yes, it will, I will, it will measure because as we age, we have high risk of cancer. So it's a way to measure that. Also, it's able to measure overall the, 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 the health of that person. Uh, it's, it's giving you a, an, an overview of, of the metabolic processes, of DNA repair, uh, everything there. Because you have altered DNA repair, uh, you, you have this alteration in, in, in obesity. All this is, is giving you a, an imprint, an epigenomic imprint that is not very good. Obviously, it's, it's not only important to look at causes of cancer and biomarkers, but once you diagnose cancer, it is important to treat and cure it. You also did some work in the area of epigenetic drug targets. Um, why are epigenetic targets a promising field to target cancer? It's promising because it's it's kind of a new field. So 
before uh, there were a lot of drugs that target DNA damage, that cause DNA damage, that cannot be repaired cancer cells and they die, etc. Um, but this is a new way to attack cancer cells, to restore some memory, cellular memory in the cells, to induce differentiation of the cells. And the other good thing is that these are uh, drugs that are very well tolerated by the patients. They are given in a low dose, maintaining time. This is not like a shock. You want to kill all the cells. What you do is that the cells stop growing. They, they, they do not go to cell cycle. Okay, they, they are like being, being switched off in a, in a smooth, slow manner. Okay, the, and, and this is relevant because they are very, very well tolerated by the patients. Uh, I, I believe really that these drugs are great in combination with others because you can attack a cancer cell with three different drugs that has different uh, targets. Imagine the nerve repair, imagine a tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and imagine an epigenetic drug, um, like an inhibitor of DNA methylation or histone desethylation. It's the best way because the tumor cannot survive attacks at three different places. Would you say that the epigenetic drugs uh, have lower side effects than normal drugs? Yes, they have. At, at these levels are given today. Uh, at the beginning, at the mid, early mid-80s, so a long time ago, they were given to a high dose and they were very toxic because they, they were trained like were cytotoxic drugs, okay, like giving carmustine and other drugs. Now we're given at more low dose maintaining time and they are very well tolerated. Um, our normal cells, they have a more wide window of tolerance, while cancer cells, they have a narrow window to tolerate these drugs. And it's something that it helps. Um, can you maybe name uh, an example of a compound that you studied uh, in this field? So we did a lot of preclinical work, um, as I said, in cells, in, in, in different models. For uh, at the beginning, two, two types of drugs. One are inhibitors of DNA methylation. The idea of these drugs is to reactivate tumor suppressor genes that are inactivated by DNA methylation. And these drugs now, they are approved now for the treatment of uh, mainly methodological malignancies like myelodysplastic syndrome or, or acute myeloleukemia. A second type of drugs that uh, we also studied were inhibitors of histone deacetylases. And the idea here also is to induce also differentiation overall of these drugs. And these drugs, are, for example, are approved for the treatment of, of some uh, lymphomas in this case. And what we did also is to start um, trying new drugs that still not, not, not are not approved, but at least we, we put um, a, we did a small step in that direction. For example, um, inhibitors of particular subtypes of histone deacetylases. For example, we try a histone deacetylase 6 inhibitor that it works in a in a new in a new in a lymphoma, or inhibitor of histone phosphorylation. Okay, but it's another mark that we can use there. Also, uh, we helped at the beginning in the bromodomain inhibitors a little bit, and now they are approved for particular, uh, very particular subtypes. Uh, so we contributed a lot, at least in this first step, for many of these drugs that, have, that some of them have received clinical approval. In the last couple of years, epitranscriptomics has gotten a lot of traction in the field. Um, you also did some work in this area. Um, could you briefly explain, explain why epitranscriptomics is, is such an important area? This is a this is a new world. It's like a booming a booming field. Um, why is that? Uh, because it was known for many years that RNA was modified, but very few people uh, know about the relevance of this in disease. 
And for me and for my group, that we studied modifications of DNA was particularly easy or attractive to move to particular RNA modifications in RNA, not in DNA. In DNA, we had methylation of a particular site, of a cytosine, but in RNA, we have methylated methylation, like in DNA, but not only of the C, uh, also of the A at the one position, at the sixth position, instead of a U in the RNA, sometimes there is a pseudo U, a pseudo uridine, and many other chemical modifications. So when, when we realize of this, that, okay, all this can be wrong in cancer. And again, the same that happened with non-coherent RNAs is the same. Here, all these type of RNA modifications, uh, some of the enzymes are altered in cancer cells, and you have uh, downstream effects in for, for the phenotype of cancer cells. Uh, many effects, growth, uh, apoptosis, metastasis, etc. I think it's a, it's a very exciting field. Yeah, you just touched upon it a little bit, or my next question. How does epitranscriptomics influence then cancer? Is it the RNA itself, or is this like the modifying enzymes? Yeah, so, so uh, I was recently reading recently this uh, perspective by, by Hanahan in the uh, Hardmax of Cancer, no? Cancer Discovery published, uh, I think, last week. Um, and now epitranscriptomics is there. It's one of the landmarks. No? Epigenetics was there like a few years back. Now epitranscriptomics is there. Why is it so relevant? Because it can affect any RNA. Any RNA of a cell cycle inhibitor, of a tyrosine kinase, of the PDL1, uh, all of this can be affected by RNA modifications. And this can modify completely the landscape of expression of activity of proteins and non coding RNAs. Okay. Uh, just to give you an example, we show that um, uh, this field that is also called epitranscriptomics for the for the analogy with epigenetics, no? uh, the modification of, of transcriptome in this case. For example, we show that the ribosomal RNA or transfer RNA, that they, we thought these were inert molecules doing nothing in the cell, just a structural translation of proteins, but nothing like that, like in a factory, very boring to be there, okay? But no, they are active molecules, and some of them are lost or gained in cancer cells. Some cells, in one tumor type, they gain activity and are lost, and, and this is associated with changes in sometimes in epigenetics. And this is very complex, as I said. So imagine epigenetics, silence an enzyme that it's an epitranscriptomic enzyme and changes a non-coin RNA. <laughs> and finally, it changes cancer cells. So this is like, like a cascade of events. Yeah, that, that uh, sounds very interesting. And also... And, and we have not mentioned that there are drugs that target now epitranscriptomics. And these are the new drugs. None of this is still approved for patients. But now there are you know, a couple of discoveries suggesting, oh, maybe this drug is another way to attack cancer cells, just uh, inhibiting these enzymes involved in RNA modification. And this is another another interesting area of research. I mean, there are the, the enzymes that I know. This is FTO, this is METTL, um, and there is ALK-BH5. Um, which of those enzymes are targeted in this case? Uh, uh, everything started with the easiest one. This is one that always uh, to target uh, something activates uh, to, because you want to block the active site, is for the chemistry, it's easier for the in pharmacology. So a lot of these are inhibitors of M6A methyltransferases. Okay, okay. and it's that has are more in advance, but you will see it for others. Uh, eventually, happen at the beginning were inhibitors only of DNA methyltransferases, and later HTAC, uh, uh, HTAC, later histomethyltransferases, later bromodomain inhibitors. It's going to be the same for uh, epitranscriptomics. 
So uh, the last 25 minutes we talked about cancer, but I also saw that you did a paper about COVID and the uh, connection of uh, epigenetics to COVID. Um, what did you find there? So, so we thought that many of the tools we had, because we like to do a lot of comprehensive epigenomic studies in disease, a lot of cancer, but sometimes outside cancer. We thought, uh, let's try to use these tools to see, uh, to study COVID-19. And, and this happens because epigenetics is very relevant in the immune section of our, of our body, okay? It's a critical determinant of immune activity. So what we here is try to answer a question uh, is that other people are infected by the virus, but if you are not obese or you don't have any particular medical condition, usually they're okay, but there is some patients, some people infected that they have a, a poor prognosis and they are a small fraction. Okay, and they are apparently healthy. Okay, so what we did here is to compare people with this um, very se se severe outcome versus people that were mostly asymptomatic, compared one versus the other. And we found markers uh, they were altered in DNA methylation, and they suggest this, these markers that these patients with this more uh, worse uh, disease they have an exaggerated immune response. It's not the virus itself, it's our body acting too much against that virus. And this creates the pneumonitis and all the, the respiratory failure that happened there. So it's it's a step showing that epigenetics contributes to many other things, not only cancer, as you mentioned. Would you be able to test that or is it too complicated to like test it for an individual? Yes, uh, so far the, the approach that we use is, is, more, is very comprehensive. It was uh, like one of the huge DNA methylation microarrays that we had here. Uh, but this can be uh, maximized, selected for a few markers. And it's something that people are interested. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it, it can be done. It can be done. Okay. It, has be, it has to be done in the context of all the other markers. Um, I'm a firm believer in multiomics uh, in a way that to study, really characterize a tumor or a disease, you have to do epigenetics, epitranscriptomics, transcriptomics, proteomics, genomics. Let's put all them together and mix all of them with the bioinformatics, of course, and your computational uh, partner. So, um, yeah, my last question maybe to your science is, what are you working on right now in your group? And maybe also, what is your view, uh, your vision for the, the institute that you are director of now? So, uh, we have an uh, interest in many things in the lab. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about different things. Uh, I, I like, I would like to expand this area of epitranscriptomics still to see, to find new genes altered in that affects RNA modifications. Try to expand also to drugs that target epitranscriptomics. That's also very interesting. More pre to, uh, to create more preclinical data that somebody later in the clinics can show that they have effect or not, these, these drugs. And the other area is I want to, to apply a lot, uh, uh, start applying single cell to epigenetics and epitranscriptomics, uh, because we have a lot of single cell expression. But single cell epigenetics and epitranscriptomics is not so well developed. So I think that these are uh, important areas to, for, the, for the coming years. And for, for the institute itself, the idea is of this institute is to put together uh, basic translational and, and, and clinicians. It's not always the easiest, but you put them under the same umbrella and under the same cantina, sometimes it's easier. You know, because uh, they, they can talk in the, here in the labs or in the hall. And the idea is that some knowledge that's created by our basic researchers can make the fast the transition to application. 
and this is the, the idea. Uh, of course, mostly in the, in the context of, of leukemia, lymphoma, but also in the basic mechanism of cancer, uh, because at the end, all this can be applied to any tumor type. So in the last like 32 minutes, we have taken a journey through your, through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? So the, the most important findings, I think, has been that I think we have contributed that epigenetics now is a key player in cancer. It's something that people take in, uh, in consideration. No? It's not it's not only mutations, epigenetics contribute. That recognition, it was not easy. It took decades, but, but now it's there. Uh, everybody studying cancer understands that epigenetics contribute to that. So putting uh, in, the, in the central crossroad, uh, epigenetics. Second has been probably the, the biomarkers. Uh, that now we have biomarkers based on epigenetics that they have received clinical approval. Uh, not, it's not only something academic, clinical approved, and they are used mostly in the context of cancer, but some are starting in other fields also, but mostly in cancer. And the third is the approval of the drugs. I think we're at the beginning, also important in, in that uh, preclinical demonstration that these drugs work uh, in this context. And later the, the clinicians took it over and, and, and they did the, the patients. And, and I think it's good news that some of them are are treated and and some of them they have a drug that before there was no drug for them just just to mention this disease uh, uh, malodysplastic syndrome is a, a preformal leukemia there was no drug for them just palliative care and, and now they have a drug for example so thank you Manuel for your time and for being on the show it has been a pleasure thank you thanks for listening to this episode of the epigenetics podcast from active motif We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.